Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. He came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus... Tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Most of you understand the context, but if you don't, I will explain that we are talking about uh, some extreme prejudice, cultural divisions that are going on here. And the Jews and the Samaritans virtually had no use for each other. There's a second level here as well, and that is the man and the woman by themselves would not typically have this kind of conversation going on. So it was not only a a gender division here, but there was also this uh, division of uh, culture and the Jews and the Samaritans. So on these double, two levels, it is not exactly considered appropriate for these two to be interacting. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you, For a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman says, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. You can see that she's not quite understanding yet. She's not grasping yet what he is talking about. There is sometimes a bit of a heaviness, a dullness, a blindness When you speak spiritual things to non-spiritual people, it takes them a little while to catch on. So she thinks he's talking about the well and the water that's there, his lack of ability with a vessel to draw any water. And she challenges and says, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and did also his sons and his livestock? And Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst again. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Now he's explaining more fully that he's speaking in spiritual terms. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now there's more to the story, if you're familiar with that you'll know that Jesus challenged her to go get her husband, and they discovered in this conversation that Jesus knew that she had been quite around her. Had many men 
And the one that she had at the time was not even her rightful husband. And having discovered this, she says, Hmm, I perceive you are a prophet. That's a very curious response when somebody just uncovers all their dirty laundry. And as the story ends up, she is thrilled at what she has discovered. This is the Christ who brings the spiritual water that satisfies our spiritual needs. Runs into town and begins to tell with evangelistic enthusiasm, come see a prophet that tells everything I ever did. And this is the man that has the water that will satisfy our needs. Now, with that as a background, I want to talk to you today about our spiritual needs, the way the world goes about trying to meet their spiritual needs, because they do have spiritual needs. They only have physical means, but they have spiritual needs. And maybe what we do sometimes, erroneously, in trying to meet our spiritual needs. First of all, we have these basic needs that I will refer back to Maslow's uh, pyramid, hierarchy of needs. You'll remember this pyramid by Maslow that represents the very basic needs of humanity. If those needs are met, there's another set of needs on top of that that are not as fundamental and critical, but you're then free once your food is taken care of, water is taken care of, things that you fundamentally need to exist. Then you can go to the next level until finally you reach the peak of the pyramid, all other needs being satisfied. Then you reach reach what uh, Maslow calls self-actualization. And, of course, you, that doesn't mean anything in its own right other than he gave it a significance. It just means you, you finally have arrived at, at full function in your life, self-actualization. And there's some other thoughts that goes along with that. I don't think he's probably so far off in identifying the needs of mankind and the hierarchy of needs. He had no spiritual uh, emphasis or bearing or reference whatsoever when he put this together, so it's purely physical. But there are needs that we have uh, as Christians there are, and, and as spirit-based beings. There are needs that we have, very fundamental needs that have to be met before we can graduate to seeing the more advanced needs ever met. And one of these is hunger. Not only do we have physical hunger, but we have spiritual hunger. And food is not our most important basic need. I suppose for survival, air would be our most important need. We can't last very long without air to breathe. You ever see these kids running around taking the uh, helium balloons and breathing it and then talking like uh, Donald Duck or something? changes your voice. And the problem is you're not breathing oxygen when you're breathing helium. The helium's not poisonous to you. But when you're not breathing oxygen, that's bad. And unfortunately, it's, it's a very dangerous thing for them to be in, inhaling 
something that does not provide the basic nutrients of oxygen that we need to survive. So kids have been brain damaged. They've died just not because of the helium poisoning, but lack of oxygen. So you people knock it off. Can't afford to lose anybody that way. We need, but we probably need water before we need food. But we like food. And hunger is one of those needs that I would suggest that the craving for food is probably stronger than the craving for water. Because, as I had mentioned in a previous sermon, we don't go very long in missing what is a regularly scheduled meal before we get grumpy. But a lot of us are dehydrated. Your doctor will tell you you're not drinking enough water. So the craving for the food is strongest, but the food is not the most necessary. And then we have the basic need of thirst, spiritually speaking. And it's not as pesky as that hunger craving. Yet, water is more vital than food for us. We can go 40 days, if, uh, if we're healthy, we can go 40 days, uh, perhaps, without food. People have done 40-day fast. It gets to be dangerous. Uh, Moses fasted for 80 days. He fasted for 40 days once, and then uh, he came down out of the mountain and went back and fasted for 40 more days. It's a very dangerous thing. I can't go 7 to 10 days without water. And rest is a, is a basic spiritual need. I, people have been known to go with too little sleep for an extended period of time. But the, the experts tell us that if you are sleep-deprived, that your behavior is exactly that, like that of a drunk person. You become confused. You have erratic motor skills, impaired judgment. We need rest. It's a basic, fundamental need. Spiritually, we need rest. And there are others. I'm not trying to be exhaustive today. So if I leave something out, you think of something. That's okay. Uh, I just want to kind of touch on some things. But more advanced needs, if we have those basic spiritual needs met, uh, then we might begin to spiritually think about needing Safety, shelter. And I'm thinking of the time that Jesus sat outside Jerusalem and looked over the beloved city. And he cried out and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you kill the prophets, stone them that are sent unto thee. He said, How often I would have gathered you together as a hen gathereth her chicks. He wanted to protect them. He wanted to guard them. But he said, You wouldn't come to me. You wouldn't have anything to do with it. But we need that, and Jesus offers that. A higher need than the basic needs would be love, self-esteem, respect, and even in the spiritual sense. Those are are valid needs. And our highest needs in this self-actualization, we understand the highest level of functionality in that highest place. In matters of creativity and morality, 
and problem solving. And in a biblical sense, in a spiritual sense, this self-actualization would be a place where all other needs are met and we're healthy and we're functioning. But now we begin to discover God's purpose for our life. And we can't get to the place of appreciating what God created us for, what He wants us to be doing, if we're not even satisfying our spiritual hunger, our spiritual thirst, and finding our spiritual rest. We have to take care of these things before we ever understand purpose in our life. The second point is, so where do we go to find fulfillment? I would suggest that people look to the world to find an answer to their needs. And this is probably the most obvious one. We see it every day. We work with people who are looking to the resources of the world to satisfy their needs. Our city is filled with people that are looking to the world and the resources of the world to satisfy their needs. And their failure to understand their spiritual needs cannot be fulfilled in carnal means causes them to plunge into those most alarming self-destructive behavior because they sense a craving in their life, yet they keep doing damaging, destructive things to try and find that peace and that fulfillment. There's been many a, a person, young lady, young man, that because they feel this deep craving for being loved, that they have sold themselves out to too many people trying to find a fulfillment for this thing inside. I just want to be loved. Young people have their cravings and desires racing around inside of them. Hormones are just flying. And unfortunately, they fall for the lies of hell that tells them they'll find everything they've been looking for if they just experiment with what the world has to offer. There's not one person, and I might zero in on the young people, but there's not one young, there's not one person who has ever veered into the damaging lifestyle, the risky lifestyle, who went there saying, I want to destroy my life, and this is a good way to do it. No, they went there thinking, I want to be happy. I want to find some joy. I want to enjoy my life. And it's just a lie of hell that anything beneficial can be found as they experiment with things that are illegal, immoral, illicit, but modeled by the crowd. Now, here's what I'm wondering. I'm thinking about this. In this enlightened age that we are living in, this age in which we have had this very prominent war on drugs, 
This age in which multiple millions of dollars have been spent for campaigns and advertising time and sponsoring conferences, urging young people to say no to drugs. In this enlightened day and age, when we have documented the statistics, the cold hard facts about drugs and addiction, in this day and age, when we have watched countless celebrities destroy their lives, their careers, and their reputations through the drugs, in this day and age, when out of all the multiplied millions of people who have ever used or are using drugs, we have yet to platform one single individual who stands up and testifies that their recreational drug use saved their marriage, healed their body, put their family back together, helped them rise to the top of their profession, brought them untold happiness and success. Why? In this age, would one person ever experiment with their first drug? I don't understand it. So you have to ask yourself, why would you do that? Of all that we know, and of all the evidence, and of all the, the, the sensibility that goes into avoiding this, why do it? Because there's a craving. And somehow we keep buying the lie that if I satisfy this craving, I will be happy. These fundamental cravings are so intense that the sales pitch from hell being so slick that, in, that all sanity and all reason and all rational thinking and all common sense gets tossed out because hell promises certain things it cannot deliver on, and people continue to buy it. I would suggest, too, that people tend to look to themselves for fulfillment. Of course, we all know the, the self-made person. You've probably met one or many in your life, these independent people. They don't want to rely on anyone. They want to solve everything themselves. They want to make their own way instead of asking for help. And it's not that people don't know they need help. They just think they are the help. I need help. I will help myself. They want to fix everything. But as, as hesitant as they are to ask another person for help, they are all the more hesitant to ask God for help. Because for them, asking God for help is a sign of weakness. And these are independent people. They don't want to be seen as weak. Asking God for help is, help is oftentimes seen as foolish. Only weak-minded people need God. But I've seen more than one stubborn man knock to his knees before he actually took time to reach out for God. And I don't want anybody to be driven that low before you begin to realize, I need God. Now, I, I want to read a part of a poem written by James Weldon Johnson. He was a brilliant author of what would be considered black poetry. Probably one of the more famous ones, if you're a Gaither fan, has been Go Down Death. 
But in this poem called The Prodigal Son, it's a long poem, it's a sermon. He begins with these words, and these words have become very popular in this day and age. He begins the poem saying, young man, young man, your arm is too short to box with God. Now you've heard that phrase, haven't you? This is from Johnson's sermon, The Prodigal Son. The sermon is so good, I wish I could just read it to you, and then I wouldn't have to preach. But may I extract a couple of stanzas for you as he pictures powerfully and graphically how the young man leaves his father and goes into the world to find fulfillment and ends up in a place that is so wicked and so vile that Johnson calls it Babylon. And I'll pick this up in about the middle where he says, Oh, sinner, when you're mingling with the crowd in Babylon, drinking the wine of Babylon, running with the women of Babylon, you forget about God and you laugh at death. Till the day you've got the strength of a bull in your neck and the strength of a bear in your arm. Some of these days, some of these days, you'll have a hand-to-hand struggle with bony death, and death is bound to win. I skip a little bit, and then I find another stanza where he says, Then the young man joined the crowd, the beggars and the lepers of Babylon. He went to feeding swine, and he was hungrier than the hogs. He got down on his belly in the mire and the mud and ate the husks with the hogs and not a hog was too low to turn up his nose at the man in the mire of Babylon then the young man came to himself he came to himself and said in my father's house are many mansions every servant in his house has bread to eat every servant in his house has a place to sleep I will arise and go to my father How low must a person fall before they reach out to God? How long must a person try to steer their own ship on the rocky shoals of sin and destruction before he turns the wheel over to God? How large a price will a person pay? Those things that they pay can never be bought back. Before one finally cries out, I surrender all, all to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. How much does it cost before we come to the place of realizing this one simple thing? I don't care who you are and what you have and what you think. You need God. I don't care what your philosophies are. You'll never be satisfied with all the substitutes that promise peace and joy and happiness and contentment. They don't work. And the problem is they only bring temporary satisfaction. And that's enough to keep people going back. But the woman who came to the well would drink water and she would thirst again. And Jesus saw in her a woman who could not find satisfaction. 
In just one man, it had to be two men, three men, four men, five men, six men. There was no stopping this. And he realized there's a thirst that she's trying to satisfy. But once she drinks of the wells of this world, she's thirsty again. And he speaks spiritual truth to her and tells her, but if you would drink of the water I offer, you would never thirst again. You would never have to have another man. You would never have to live with another abuser. You would never have to sell yourself out again because if you drink of my water, you will be satisfied. How long will a person pretend to make his or her own way in life without God, wandering farther and farther into that barren wilderness before they find and decide, I need God. I can't find my way by myself. And there's nothing here that satisfies. I would say, number three, people look to the church to try and find fulfillment. And the church is supposed to be this agency through which ministry happens. The biblical definition of ministry is to serve. We are supposed to help facilitate the act of people connecting with God. We're supposed to be pointing them to Calvary, pointing them to Christ. Not that we have anything except what God has given us. And we as the dispensers of certain of these things can help people to find the peace and the joy that God wants to bring. In some ways, we're brokers of the graces of God and the favors of God. In some ways, we're just conduits through which God flows. In some ways, we are administrators of the blessings that flow from our giftings, understanding that there are some gifts we must initiate. Like if you want to talk about the gifts of the Holy Spirit where God speaks through you a special message, God initiates that. But what if you go to the book of Romans chapter 12 and you discover there that the Bible tells us some people have the gift of serving. You initiate that. The gift of encouraging. You initiate that. The gift of giving. The gift of showing kindness. You initiate those things. But there are occasions where we the church that are supposed to be dispensing the things to a hungry and a thirsty and a weary people. Sometimes the church misses the mark. When the church begins to rely on slogans, we're done. It's finished. I'm not saying a tricky slogan can't be used. But it's not the power of God. It can't be just a slogan-driven church. It's a trick to borrow the techniques of Madison Avenue. Products today are sold not by the quality of the product, but by the effectiveness of the advertisement scheme. It's how powerfully they can sell it. How many of you bought ShamWow? Nobody wants to raise their hand. It's not the quality of the product that sells it. It's the fast-talking bitch man that makes you want it so bad. 
I bought one. Now we're getting honest. Oh, pastor, if you did, I did too. The right slogan is worth millions in this day and age. And Madison Avenue understands that the perfect slogan, the right slogan, the best sales pitch has to contain elements that appeals to three things concerning humanity. It has to con- con- contain vanity. It has to appeal to our sense of immediate gratification. And it has to appeal to materialism. That's the way that Madison Avenue successfully sells things that otherwise would not sell itself because they don't work. But they appeal to these baser notions in us, and then the church looks at that, and they start getting trained in Madison Avenue techniques to get people in. Christopher Latch wrote a book called The Culture of Narcissism. And in that, he indicted Americans as being as vain as Narcissus, who was the mythical figure who, who looked in a pool of water and saw in his own image and fell in love with himself. And eventually, because of this self-love, turned into a flower. And as ridiculous as that mythology sounds, it epitomizes the most intolerable level of self-love that is found in our culture today. The Bible doesn't speak in slogans. It speaks in powerful truths. There's not these nice little biblical cliches to warm your heart. There are eternal truths that call you to a higher plane. Solomon one time declared vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What the king meant was that life is dedicated to self-indulgence. And isn't it ironic that the man who wrote that set the high watermark for vanity? He should know. He tried it. And he found out it's emptiness. Just consider Solomon for a moment, if you would. He started off with this great noble notion. His, his original thought was nothing but the best for God. Now, who can't admire that? And so he begins this, this project of building a temple. Nothing but the best for God. He became obsessed with this. It ceased to be something for God. It became something for Solomon. He hires 30,000 men to do nothing but chop and shape wood. He hires 80,000 stonemasons to do nothing but to trim and carve and fit the stones. And he became so ridiculous, so demanding, he said, And furthermore, you hewers of wood, you carvers of the stone, you masons, I want you to go out in the mountain and do your work. I don't want to hear the sound of a hammer in my kingdom. So they have to go out there and shape the stones and haul them in and set them in place. He had a 24-hour guard around himself where he chose the best-looking, strongest, tallest men in the kingdom. And he said, just follow me 24-7. Never let me out of your sight. He had 40,000 stalls of horses and chariots. And that was only just a minuscule part of his treasury. If he wanted a building, he built it. If he wanted a team of horses, he bought them. If a woman caught his eye, he took her for his own. And when he got done collecting women, he had a thousand of them. Only 700 he married. The other three were just lady toys for him. Nothing. 
nothing was out of his reach. Whatever he wanted, he got it. He indulged himself physically, financially, sexually. He strayed from the sacred teachings of his father and began to experiment with other religions just to see what they were like. He literally worked for earthly fame and fortune. And after he had tried it all, possessed it all, he sat down and wrote these haunting words, vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity. It's all useless. Life is useless because he had tried to fill himself with everything he could fill himself with, and he was not satisfied. The second thing is immediate gratification that they try to appeal to. You've heard the the pitches. Hurry, supplies are limited. Last day of this incredible offer. Just pick up the phone today and have your credit card ready. One of our operators are waiting now to take your call. And all of these cater to our desire to have it now. No waiting. This microwaving, networking, instant on, express lane, credit while you wait, fast food, GMO generation has become as demanding as a newborn baby. Everybody wants a shortcut. They want to instantly gain weight. They don't want to instantly lose weight. They want to instantly build muscle. They want to lose fat. They want to grow crops. They want to raise livestock in a fraction of the time it takes to do it the old-fashioned way. And again, quoting from Christopher Lash's book, The Culture of Narcissism, he says that the self-centered American demands immediate gratification and lives in a state of restlessness, perpetually unsatisfied desire. And how much of that creeps over into the church? When we come to church and people shop for church, like they shop for an automobile, for a house, they're very discriminating. What time do you start? What time do you let out? Does he preach too long? Yes. I take my own time. It's not express. This is not the express lane. I get one chance a week to get to tell you something. And what I have to tell accumulates snowballs all week. I'm not about to slice off a 15-minute piece of that and give it to you. But it doesn't appeal to everybody. I want to get in. I want to get out. They shop for church. They compare the features and kick the tires. They want church to be in and out in less time than it takes to get your car oil changed. And we preachers, many of us in churches across the United States of America, because we want things so fast and so now, we're given 30 minutes to raise the dead, and we can't do it. But the valuable things of God don't come on the express delivery truck. Receiving the precious things of God is not at all like the express lane at the supermarket. We talked last week about Terry in Jerusalem. Waiting on God. Do we wait on Him? Are we so impatient we have to have this now? Materialism. One slogan says, who says you can't have it all? There's many other slogans. I don't want to spend much time on those. But the advertising today is professionally designed to make you want things you don't need. Have you ever noticed that? 
People become addicted to the shopping network, armed with a credit card. They run up thousands of dollars of debt buying every gadget they see. Then they have a garage sale. But what does the Bible say? The Bible says life doesn't consist in the abundance of things a man possesses. Everybody remember comedian Richard Pryor? There was a time in life, here's his quote. He said, there was a time in my life when I thought I had everything. Millions of dollars, mansions, cars, nice clothes, beautiful women, and every other materialistic thing you can imagine. And he said, now I struggle to find peace. But that's not an isolated case. There's never been in the history of mankind one person that has ever ultimately testified they found fulfillment in their possessions. The rich young ruler came to Jesus with the same anxiety in his life. He was rich, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. All of it was handed to him, but something was missing in his life, and he couldn't quite put his finger on it. Till he found this band of disciples following Jesus, and they seemed so happy. And he comes to Jesus compelled to ask, What must I do to inherit eternal life? What is wrong with me? What am I missing? I can buy anything I want. I've got all kinds of power at the tip of my hand. What is wrong? Why am I so miserable? And Jesus said, your problem is you're trying to fill yourself up with the things that do not satisfy. If you want to be my disciple, sell all that you have, give it to the poor, and start all, start all over. And the Bible says he went away very sad because he just could not bring himself to make that kind of sacrifice. And like the woman at the well who had this deeper thirst than physical water could satisfy people, are still looking to drink from the world's well, and they're still spiritually thirsty. People are desperately searching. We have seen the pictures of little children in third world countries that are starving because of the famine. We've seen their bones protruding, their legs looking like sticks, and their bellies swollen. It's not uncommon in that kind of condition of ultimate starvation that these people will begin to eat dirt because dirt fills the stomach. It takes away that gnawing hunger. There is a satisfaction in having something in their stomach. But everybody knows you can't live on dirt. They're filled. But they're not nourished they're certainly not satisfied and it's a pitiful thing i've never been so hungry that i thought thought i'll just fill myself up with dirt just so i don't hurt so bad until i die but spiritually speaking there are multitudes that are feeding on the dirt of this world just to take away the gnawing pain that they have and it cannot satisfy They need Christ. Stuffing themselves with the garbage of hell and when the belly swells, they think themselves full. But they're still dying from spiritual malnutrition. So what does the church offer? 
Americans have become, quote, slaves to slogans. And the church wants to play the game of sloganizing everything. Churches begin to promote themselves as exciting, dynamic, friendly, caring, seeker-sensitive. We're trying to cash in on the wave of sensationalism that draws this 21st century generation. And I want to tell you, people, I just can't play the game. I don't have the money to keep up. I don't have the, the knowledge to keep up. And I can't try and draw them in with all of these slogans and all of these things. All I can do is try and spread a banquet of the truth of God and trust that one of these days people who have been feeding on the dirt and the garbage of this world are going to discover there's something nutritious in finding God. It'd be something different if we were trying to build a social club here. But we're not. We're the church. It's the proclamation of the good news and the exaltation of Jesus Christ that is the business of the church. Are we offering more slogans? Are we offering more than just a social club? Are we, or are we dispensing the gifts and the power of God to the needy people? That's what we should be doing. To the hungry, it's not a slogan we offer them. But to the hungry, we can remind them that Jesus stood on the shores and cried out to the fishermen, Come and dine. It's ready. To the hungry, we can tell them, Jesus has a table spread for you. To the thirsty, we can echo the words of Jesus and say, Whosoever drinks this water shall never thirst again. To the weary, we can remind them that Jesus said, Come on to me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden. I will give you rest like you've never known it before. To those who seek safety and shelter, I can remind them that Jesus very boldly and confidently said, My peace I give to you. Not like the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let your hearts be afraid. To those who are looking for a purpose in life, I can remind them that Jesus said, If you will take up your cross and follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. I will show you what you were created for. It's not just slogans. It's a world that has a need. They know they have a need. I don't understand how people keep going back to the thing that does not satisfy But the thing that does satisfy is knowing that I've come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. And I don't have to be bullied by hell anymore. I don't have to risk my health, my sanity. I realize that when I give my heart to Jesus, I have a home in heaven. I have eternal life. And I'm hoping and praying and pressing in and fasting and believing as a pastor that God is going to somehow start with the young people we have here at Westside, that they start getting turned on to Jesus again. He's been left out of this culture. But I'm praying God will put something in the hearts of our young people that they quit looking to the world. And they finally come to Jesus and they go and say, I found it. I found it. Like the woman at the well who runs back into town and says, I have finally found it. 
the water that you never thirst again. Believe with me, people, that God will work through the young people of this church to take their eyes away from the compelling things of this world and to turn them on Jesus and to get the burden for ministry and to sign up for missions and to go into ministry and to witness to their friends and tell them, come and see the prophet that has told me all that I have done.